Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. So tonight we are looking at Leviticus 17, chapter 17, verse 1 through chapter 20, verse 27. So this is a wide swath of the book of Leviticus, chapter 17 through chapter 20. So we're going to take a bird's eye view of what is occurring in this chapter or in these chapters and not a worm's eye view. And what has been leading up to this point leads us to today of what we call the holiness code, the holiness code. In chapters 11 through 15, these are called the purity laws, the purity laws. If you want to know when the, I'm, I'm going to fill in a blank where I'm going to raise my hand like this, just so you know. Chapters 11 through 15 are the purity laws. And chapters 17 through 20, which we'll cover today, are the holiness laws, the holiness laws. So one of them deals with ritual purity, with ritual clean, uh, cleanliness, and 17 through 20 is the moral cleanliness. So we have purity and holiness. And these chapters, they complement one another. And we'll see some spots where that's not as obvious sometimes, but the chapters do complement one another. And the emphasis now is going from purity to something that is elevated beyond purity into holiness. The emphasis is now holiness. And remember that holiness is the only attribute of God that is raised to the third degree. Raised to the third degree. God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute that raises to this. So it makes sense that we would look at what God has to say and how the law helps us to be holy, to be distinct. How to live as God's distinct people. Specifically Israel and then applied to the fulfillment of Israel today, the church, how to live as God's distinct people. So in some ways, what has happened in chapters 11 through 15 sets us up for 17 through 20, and 17 through 20 is an elevation of what has happened to this point. It is a step further, as our next head title uh, shows us. So let's open to the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. I'll be in the ESV tonight if you're using your phone. Leviticus 17, starting in verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it into the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it, as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 5, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, 
that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priests at the entrance of the tents of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent, meeting, tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord so that they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, that'll be fun, after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them <clears throat> who offer a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. This is the inspired and errant and infallible word of God. So these laws that we see unfolding, stepping forward, elevating out of the purity codes or the purity laws, these laws seem to correspond to earlier dietary laws. They seem to correspond to the earlier dietary laws that we see unfolding in chapters 11 through 15, but they go a step further because this is ac about actual moral sin. This is about actual moral sin, and many of these laws deal with morality. So correspond moral sin and morality. So this opens up in these, in these verses. It says, any animal killed in or outside of the camp must present it as a sacrifice. They must present this at a sacrifice and not for yourselves. And this was to protect them, protect the people from sacrificing to idols. So opening up, it says, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel. Say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb, or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside of the camp, it must be brought in, and does not bring it in, they will have blood on their shoulders. So to start this, he's talking about the personal animals that are meant for the Lord, right? The ox, the goats, the lambs, the other animals are implied. This is not an exhaustive list. This is the personal, the personal animals of the house of Israel that are going to be used to sacrifice to the Lord for his worship, to feed the priests, and to feed the families. So if you do it right, if you do it wrong, it doesn't matter. Any animal of the, that you kill inside the camp or outside the camp must be brought to the tent to be a sacrifice to the Lord. And this was to protect them, the people, from sacrificing to idols. So that's, that's the positive and negative of this, of don't take it away from the Lord, these animals that are intended for the Lord's sacrifice, and don't sacrifice them to idols. We see that in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to what? Goat demons, after whom they whore. Boy, that's a real fun verse. And <laughs> I had a lot of fun trying to find commentaries all day that actually speak to us. Couldn't find it on MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, 
Longman, Garland, Zane didn't have one, I didn't have one. We finally found one that speaks well to it. And basically, the goat demons, the goat demons, or your version may say the goat idols, at the very least is representative of any idol. It doesn't matter if it's goat or not. But scholars seem to think that this goat demon or this goat idol, idol is a statue of some sort of a male goat that they would sacrifice to, that this would be a Jewish kind of knockoff version of the Greek Seder, which would bring you fertility or uh, um, abundance and things of that nature if you made a sacrifice to this goat idol. And in general, the goat idol represents apostasy, apostasy, because that's what we see happening, opening up. You're taking away the sacrifices that go to the Lord, you're taking them for yourself, and then you're sacrificing them to an idol. Goat, goat demon and all of that aside, that's, that's the big picture. You're moving away from God, and then you're moving towards an idol. So it serves as a picture of apostasy in general, and this was to protect the people from sacrificing to idols. That's the second bullet point, if you're wondering where we are. It also emphasized the importance of the atonement in general, that this is a big, serious deal. And not only was this a huge deal for Israel and Leviticus, it's actually a bigger deal for us even today. And we'll see that as we move along. So the big picture is of what not to do is you are not to take any sacrifice or to do to take the sacrifices to the Lord. That's the positive. And the negative is don't take any of those and offer them to idols. And they would typically be tempted or follow through to sacrifice these animals to idols because they would want more benefits for themselves. So if you don't sacrifice it to the Lord, he doesn't get his part, which means you don't have to feed the priest, which means you get more by the time it comes to you, right? So the, 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 the quantity is lessening throughout. And so the people of Israel will be tempted to just skip the Lord, skip the priest, take those that were killed in secret, right? That's what it means, in or out of the pasture. It's done in secret, so that way they could have more meat for themselves, and they could just bypass the whole God thing, the whole church thing, and then they would have more for themselves. They would have the benefits of God, the food, without having God, or the priests, or the church, or things of that nature. Just bypass it all. So how is this disobedience to this command similar to murder. This is how big of a deal this is. Look at verse 4. It says, and does not bring it to the entrance. So this is, they didn't take the sacrifice animal to the tent. Of the tents of meeting to offer it as a gift of the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. So this is how big of a deal this is. To take an animal that was intended for the worship of God, to take that, kill it, not take it to God, not take it to the priest, not to do it in the proper order, and keep it for your benefits, or worse, sacrifice it to an idol, so that way you could have more, you have blood guilt. That means it is so bad that you might as well have killed somebody. So let, let that weight kind of sink in for a moment. So this is such a heinous sin in God's eyes that it incurs blood guilt. And the consequences are to be cut off from his people. You're not even going to be 
part of the family of God at this point if you do this. Now, obviously, it's not the same thing as murdering a person, correct? It's not a one-on-one one correlation. This adds weight to what God is revealing here, that it is an incredibly weighty thing to steal from the Lord what belongs to him, the worship, and to offer it to anything less, an idol, for your benefit, the consumption. The second question down there before wild game is, what warning sets the rhythm of this section? We see it in verse 9, verse 4, verse 10, verse 14. See that at the end of verse 4? He has shed blood, and that man shall be what? Cut off from among his people. Look at verse 9. And does not bring it into the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord. The man shall be cut off from his people. Verse 10 at the end. I will set my face against that person who eats the blood and will cut off or cut him off from among his people. End of verse 14. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So the rhythm there is being cut off, cut off. This is so serious in God's eyes that you might as well have killed somebody and the consequence is you are removed from his presence. You are cut off from the people of God. So that is how serious this is getting into uh, chapter 17. Remember, this is an elevation of what we saw in 11 through 15. But Leviticus is detailed of different scenarios. Look at Look at verses 13 through 16. We're going to get into wild game and accidental kills and things of that nature. It says, Anyone also of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by other beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. And he will be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be, be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So the first thing we see is that the people were permitted to hunt without offering sacrifices. So if you were to hunt for food, for the purpose of food and clothing and things of that nature, you don't have to offer a sacrifice. So this is an extension of what's happened. The first animals, the ox, the goat, the cow, things of that nature for peace offerings, those are intended for God's worship. Those require sacrifice. But if you hunt an animal in the wild, no sacrifice required. Or they could also eat the meat of an animal that died from natural causes. So if an animal just dies, they are allowed to go get that animal to eat that meat and so forth. Or if another animal kills another animal and there are leftovers, they are allowed to go get that animal and to eat it. However, we notice that the response to the natural killings and the huntings are slightly different than what we found in verse or chapter 11. So what is the different about purification in chapter 11:39? So turn to chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. Chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. And if in any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass 
shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Did you catch the pattern? If you touch a dead animal, you have to wash your clothes. But notice in Leviticus 17, 13 through 16, if you kill or hunt an animal or you find a dead animal that has died of natural causes, you have to wash your clothes and your body. So we see a distinction between 11 and 17. Remember, an elevation. Because you sacrifice animals to the Lord, when you're taking these and moving them, you're touching dead carcass, you must wash your clothes. Obviously, if you hunt an animal, you're going to gut it and skin it and things of that nature, so you're touching a dead carcass, and the response is to wash your clothes and your body. So the question is, is why do we see this difference? You're touching a dead carcass either way. The real answer is we're not entirely sure. It's not explicitly given, but Matt Price and I talked, and our suspicion is that because of the act is different. You are actively killing this animal for your gain of some sort. It's not being offered to the Lord. You are participating in the full consumption of this animal versus this is being offered to the Lord and to the priest and this is done for worship, this is done for consumption, and being an active participa uh, participant in receiving that likely elevates the need of cleansing beyond just the clothes. So you've got to wash the clothes and the body. But we can't really be dogmatic about this. So as Matt would say, this is Brother Matt talking, not Pastor Matt. So no need to be dogmatic about that, but there is a slight distinction between chapter 11 and chapter 17. So if you'll turn the page, we're on the back of your handout, if you're following along. So what is the deal with the blood in general? 13 through 16, about touching the carcass and what not consuming the blood. Many ancient religions practiced the ritual consumption of blood. The ritual consumption of blood. They would consume the blood, drink it, or they would mark their faces with blood, or they would actually fully bathe in blood. The, the pagan nations surrounding would typically do this for health and vitality and uh, procreation or bravery and battle and things of that nature. That, that's been a, a standing tradition in many cultures across the world is the consumption of blood or the marking of blood, of using blood as a special element. But in Israel, Israel was forbidden from consuming blood in any way, any way. Look at verse 10. It says, If anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood, and I will cut him off. End of 14. For the life of every creature is, is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats, eats it shall be cut off. Israel is forbidden to practice the consumption of blood. So that was, it's obviously heinous. When I said the consumption of the blood, half of you cringed to yourself, uh, thinking how gr grotesque that is to do. But it was a common practice. So what is in mind here is the actual consumption of blood. And so God is putting this command here in Leviticus to say, do not be like the outside world. Do not consume the blood. And the question is why? And this is one of the questions that Matt has. What does this prohibition say about the blood 
of these animals. Why not consume the blood since everybody else around you is doing so? Well, first, it shows a reverence for life. It shows a reverence for life because what? Life is in the blood, right? We see, we see that three times here in this section, that life is in the blood. It's not necessarily so, but the blood is pointing to the life. Because the other thing that God is trying to communicate by separating Israel from the rest of them is saying that the blood itself is not magical. The blood of these animals does not have magical properties that's going to make you super strong or live a long time or be more fertile to have more kids or to be, you know, more brave in battle. Things of any. The blood itself is not a special thing in and of the animal. And this is a, an incredibly important lesson for the church to gather today. The blood itself is not a special thing in and of itself. It's important because of what it points to. The blood is in, or life is in the blood. The blood is pointing to life, life in general. It's not life itself, but what it points to, what it signifies. And this is showing us that this is not a special substance that you get super strength if you drink all of this blood of a sacrifice offered to this special goat demon who supposedly brings you fertility. This is all a no-go in the book. And the second question we see is, when and how do we see this prohibition continued in the New Testament? Look at Acts 15, 29. Acts 15, 29. It says that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. We've already talked about that. And from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, and when it says... Do not eat blood. He's not talking about a medium rare ribeye steak. It's talking about blood because the context is the sacrificing of idols, strangling, draining the blood from a sacrifice of the idol and drinking it. So we see in the New Testament as well, do not consume the blood. This is a carryover as well. Don't consume blood because blood doesn't have a special property. It's not this magical thing that if you just do this, you'll be good and whatever. So we move this on into the big picture of what all of this means and why the blood is not a special thing in and of itself. The blood of animals could never, there's your word, never take away sin. The blood of animals could never take away from sin. Look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 4. Everybody knows, it, knows this verse. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So as the continued revelation of God unfolds in Scripture, it becomes obvious and explicitly stated that the blood is not special in and of itself. However, the blood was used to pay for atonement for your souls. We saw that earlier. So there's a disconnect that we've got to fill in the blanks here of why you would do this since the blood is not special in and of itself. The laws and rituals of Leviticus are but, here it is, shadows of true atonement shadows of true atonement and the whole old testament is a promise that god himself would provide the lamb the whole old testament is a shadow of the light to come and he is going to promise and provide the lamb for himself for we were redeemed there's a blank we are redeemed through the precious blood of christ not bulls not goats not this 
perceived special power blood drinking when you sacrifice things to a special goat demon. It's not in that, but it is in Christ himself. Turn to 1 Peter 1, 18. 1 Peter 1, 18, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed, atoned, redeemed, all the same, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver, as gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The lamb has been provided, and it is the blood of the lamb that atones for your sins, that redeems you, that saves you. And what's interesting about this is Leviticus has made a big deal of how to go about this. Don't take the sacrifice away from God. Don't put the sacrifice to an idol. Don't consume the blood. Don't consume the blood three times. But interestingly, we are commanded to drink the blood, that's the blank in quotation marks, the blood of Christ in communion. We are commanded as a New Testament church to drink the blood of Christ in communion. Look at Matthew 26, 27. And it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. Or 1 Corinthians, I believe it is 11, 25. 1 Corinthians 11.25. Correct. One more page. See, when you use a real Bible, it takes more time. 11.25. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So in Leviticus, a strong emphasis has been made to not drink the blood, but in the new covenant, we now have an emphasis to drink the blood. And notice the pastor has it in quotes there, scary quotes, blood in communion. So why? Well, what we talked about earlier is that the Old Testament and the Leviticus and the atonement are shadows of the true atonement. So the animal blood that, ta- that is talked about here in Leviticus that we've built up doesn't do anything doesn't accomplish anything. Hebrews 10, 4, it doesn't atone for your sins. However, the blood of Christ actually atones for your sins. It accomplishes what the blood of goats and animals and bulls could not do. So we are commanded to drink the blood and communion because the blood actually accomplished something. It accomplished the redemption of God's people. However, remember, the blood... Is, is not the thing in itself. What do we mean when we say the blood of Christ? So the old theological question that's asked to a class is, if a sinner who's not born again, a true fallen sinner, not redeemed, ends up getting a legitimate vial of Jesus' blood, is that sinner saved? Pop it out, pour it on you. Is that person saved now? What do you think, yes or no? No, right, because what we mean when we talk about the blood of Christ, remember, blood, as in the animal, points to something else. It points to what? Life, for life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. The blood of Christ is pointing to the life of Christ, the virgin birth, the perfect sinless life, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The complete and finished work of Christ is what we mean when we say the blood of Christ. And that, the blood of Christ, actually accomplishes something. So that's why in the Lord's Supper we are to drink his blood. But again, it's not, we don't believe that the wine turns into real blood, right? Why? Because the real blood's not the special stuff. 
It's, it's signifying something. The, the life that Christ poured out. Because life is in the blood. The blood represents life. This blood represents Christ's life and what Christ did. It is poured out and we drink to this because that life is what actually accomplished the goal of atonement. So the Feast of the Lord's Day, or excuse me, uh, where are we at? Paul, there it is. Paul uses imagery from Leviticus 17 in his instructions about the Lord's Supper. And so failing to guard the blood of the sacrifices, that's the blank, of the sacrifice was like a sin against human blood. Against human blood. Remember verse 4. Look at 17.4. This is important. And does not bring it into the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift of the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now, let that sink in. So we've been talking about the shadow and the light, the before, the after, the, the promise and the fulfillment in Christ. So God has revealed in 17.4 that to take away an animal sacrifice that doesn't do anything. The blood is not special. Don't drink it. The blood of animals in Hebrews 10, this really does nothing. But if you do not guard against this blood, if you misuse this sacrifice, that person is guilty of shedding blood as if they had just killed somebody. That's, that's terrible. And this animal, this sacrifice, didn't even do anything. Now apply that to the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we drink of the Lord's blood, what it points to, his life that he poured out for us. And if we are not guarded against this, if we take this in an unworthy manner, how much more significant are we accounted to as guilty if we take the cup in an unworthy manner. If you, if you misuse the blood in the Old Testament, you might as well have killed somebody. If you misuse the Lord's Supper, it's even worse. It's much, much worse. Turn to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.27. 11.27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So in Leviticus, if you misuse this animal in an incorrect way, it's as if you had killed somebody. But if you do this for the Lord's Supper, it's even worse. It's as if you killed Christ. You don't take this serious. You are condemning. You will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. So this is why we have what we call fencing the table. In fact, this Sunday we are partaking in the Lord's Supper, and you'll see in the bulletin it'll say fencing the table, and it'll have uh, Pastor Price over to the right. So the pastors fence the table to remind the people that we do not take this in an unworthy manner because of what we see in Leviticus, how terrible it is. You might as well have killed somebody if you misuse this. How much more so if you misuse the Lord's Supper? So I implore you, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper this week, that you examine yourselves, that you repent, that you are reminded of how much we need to take these elements in a worthy manner. The feast, this is the final one in that paragraph, the feast of the Lord's Supper, Supper connects us to the reality to which the sacrifices pointed. To the reality to which the sacrifices pointed. So when we do this, we are connected to the reality. Again, remember the blood 
points to the life. When we say that's the life of Christ, and we partake in that. We are in Christ. We are partakers of this reality. And so the Israelites were tempted to worship idols. Idols. Verse 7. That is, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. Again, there's no reason to get bogged down there. I'll let you do your own research. Goat demons, idols, apostasy, taking the worship from God and moving it to idols. And this was enticing because it allowed them to kill their animals without sacrificing anything to God. It allowed them to kill their animals without sacrificing anything to God. And this is really just the problem of humanity from the beginning of time. We want the benefits of God without having God. We want to kill the animal because we want the meat, we want the hide, we want this, and we'll just go ahead and do it to an idol so we pat ourselves on the back. We at least sacrifice something. It's not just like random. We're not just eating it by ourselves. We've made some type of sacrifice, but not to God. So this wasn't just about worshiping false gods. It was a failure to worship the true God. It's a double-sided sin coin. Not only did we sacrifice it to idols, the positive, but we didn't sacrifice it and worship God with it. So it's the double side of this heinous sin that brings guilt blood. We might not be tempted by the same idols, but we still fail to give God worship he deserves. We still fail to give the worship he deserves. This is still the continual problem that we all deal with. We take from God, we apply it to something else other than God, that's an idol, and we pat ourselves on the back all along thinking we're doing a good job. Paul says, this is true worship, this true worship is to be offered in all of life. All of life. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of it is to be glorifying God, whatever that is. And the only sacrifice for sins is that of the Lord Jesus, that of the Lord Jesus. And the only proper response of worship is that of our own lives, our own lives, a living Sacrifice, as we see in Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to repent or to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, what? Your spiritual worship. We as Baptists sometimes get it wrong. <laughs> Actually, we probably get it wrong a, a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. But we get so zealous about, about uh, evangelism that we forget some of the other elements that lead us to that point, such as discipleship, and most importantly, worship. The holiness laws are leading us in, or a shadow of what brings us to worship. Why is anybody saved? Well, it's not because we're so special. It's because in John 4, he tells us he is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth worshipers to worship with all of our lives is the only response to be worshipers that's the only reason you were saved in the first place but you were worshipers who are what disciples disciples of christ going therefore into all nations 
which is evangelism. So if you're not evangelizing, it's probably because you're not being discipled or you're not a disciple. If you're not being discipled, you're probably not worshiping. And if you're not worshiping, it's probably because you haven't been saved. So we have to get first things first. And the only way that you can be saved is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension. The full, complete work of Christ is the only way that we can come to God as worshipers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. Pray that you forgive us of our sins, of how often we take what belongs to you and we take it for ourselves, or even worse, we offer it to idols. I pray that you forgive us, that you cleanse us, that you help us each and every day to be living sacrifices for you, to worship you fully in spirit and truth in all that we do, in all of life, because you held nothing back from us. And I pray that you would help us to do the same. Forgive us, bless us, and guide us this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.